Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, believers, non-believers, and everyone in between. You're listening to Stories with Sapphire. I am Sapphire Sandalo. Now get cozy and open your mind because it's story time. So indigenous people really, you know, we get into those ghost shows and, you know, hauntings and, you know, demons, this, that, and the other. Uh, and I saw you on one of the programs, kind of like a pundit, and I was like, oh, right on, you know, a woman of color. You know, hopefully they're they're listening to her uh, because we hear a lot of these, these white ghost hunters use the wrong language when it comes to indigenous people, right? They'll refer to our elders as shamans. It's like, no, that's the dead giveaway that you don't know a single native. You don't know a single indigenous person because you use the wrong language. We don't have shamans. We have our elders. We have our holy people. And then it goes in. We don't even say holy man or holy woman all the time because there's so many genders in our communities. And I just, you know, I really wanted the indigenous perspective to finally make it into these realms as well. This is Simon Moya Smith. He reached out to me on Instagram with an interest in sharing an indigenous perspective on the spirit world. It was a really important, enlightening, and heartbreaking conversation where Simon shares several supernatural experiences, discusses cultural appropriation, clears up common misconceptions, and brings to light the real-world horror that indigenous people still face today. And now, I pass the mic to him. My name is Simon Moya Smith. Uh, I'm an enrolled citizen of the Oglala Lakota Nation. That's on the Pine Ridge Res in South Dakota. And I'm also a Chicano. Uh, my, my mother's from East Los Angeles. I, I don't speak for all the indigenous tribes and nations. I'm Oglala Lakota. So I'm enrolled on the Pine Ridge Res in South Dakota. So I can speak on behalf of my people because I have the approval of the elders. But because we have this community online, especially with social media, you learn a lot about the other nations and tribes. So uh, if I mention something about the Dene, the Navajo, that's because I have a lot of Dene friends. But I just wanted to throw that out there. I do not speak on behalf of all the nations and tribes. So when I was a boy growing up in uh, Denver, Colorado, uh, I would go to what are people, what most white people call sweat lodges. For us, they're called inipis. And it's, I hate to use the word church because it's nothing like that. For us, it's just our, it's our space to pray. But it's in a circle. It's not like a church. And, you know, churches are very, you know, there's this male typically standing in front of everybody pontificating to a crowd of people. Whereas indigenous people, it's a circle. Everything is a circle. There's no head of the table. So as a boy growing up, in Colorado, we would go to the Anipis in Fort Collins. 
how NEPs work is that there's four rounds and you have these really, really hot rocks, you bring them in and then you, you pray, you sweat, you're praying for the people, you're praying for the water, praying for the land and especially, you know, women. When you think of murdered and missing indigenous women, it's really important that we go and pray often. Uh, it was it was a really weird evening. And when I say weird, it was just this is weird energy. And they shut the door and he's, you know, our holy man is singing. And all of a sudden, there's like these things that just started coming out of nowhere. They were like zip by really quickly. And I was like, okay, it's probably just, you know, it's, I'm in the sticks of Fort Collins, Colorado. So it's gotta be maybe a field mouse or something, right? And then more of them came. It was so dark that they would zip so fast and I couldn't see it until one finally just like stopped right by the front of the Nipi door. And I could see it was like this black crab. And this is Colorado, there's nothing out there that looks like black crabs. It came, here came one and then another came from the other direction and they were surrounding the Anipi. And some were even going in and out of shoes and pants because you go in there sometimes just in a towel, you know, you wear something very thin. So they were going in and out of everybody's things and I, I was getting really, really frightened. Well, this happened about the second or third door. So meaning like the third round. And when they opened it, you know, I was a little boy and so I was scared. So I darted to the door and I spoke to the, the elder and he said, stand by the fire, stand by. When I told him what I was seeing, he goes, it's okay, go stand by the fire, get close to the fire. They won't come near you if you're by the fire. So they shut the door and it's gonna be like the fourth round. So the last round. And these typically can take upward of two hours. And I remember vividly standing so close to that fire that the back of my legs were burning because they kept coming closer and closer, going in and out of people's clothing. They got as close as I would say about two feet because they weren't coming anywhere near the fire, because also the fire is sacred. You know, you put down tobacco, you put down cedar, you say prayers right before you, you set fire to the rocks. So that's a sacred space, and they won't go there. And then I saw some darting, you know, kind of doing like this dart toward the Anipi and then taking off again. And one thing I, I noticed also at that point, that some were actually coming from under it, from under the Anipi, almost like they were inside. And... Finally, finally, once the fourth door opened, they scattered, and that meant everyone was going to come out. And I remember my mom coming out, and I distinctly remember saying, should I tell people to check their shoes? Should I tell people to check their clothing? Because I was anticipating people putting them on and like it turning into like a melee. And she goes, no, 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 you're fine. And I remember watching people put their shoes on and put their pants back on and put their coats on. Nothing, nothing at all. They were gone. Sometimes after an Anipi, you'll go back to the elder's house. He'll cook you some food or his wife will cook you some food. I was in the front room and I'm still shaken. You know, I, I just saw something and I don't know what it was. And he calls me in. He tells everybody to leave the kitchen and he calls me in individually. And he sits me down. And, you know, he's got a cigarette. And uh, he says to me, I, I want to explain what you saw. And I said, okay. And he goes, what you saw were the negative energy, the sadness, the fear, the darkness, everything that everybody needed to, to let go of. Not everybody can see it. 
And he goes, you may never see it again. But in that moment, you saw it. So he didn't want me to think that for the rest of my life, I was going to go to these Anipis and, you know, have to see all the darkness and demons and however it would manifest. So I, I will never forget that for the rest of my life. And as a matter of fact, my mother still has the scratch piece of paper on like a legal pad where I illustrated it. And she still keeps it. And it's, it's just this black crab with like three, four legs on each side. The way Simon described the crabs actually reminded me of something in episode five of Ghost Town Terror. It wasn't discussed in the final cut of the episode, but the paranormal sketch artist Kristen drew a black circle with three legs on either side. She described them as bits of dark energy. I wonder if these were the same things that Simon saw. No, I haven't heard of that. This is the first time I'm ever hearing of anybody else seeing something similar to that. So for indigenous people all across this land, which we call Turtle Island, but now it's called Canada, the United States, and Mexico, darkness and and demons manifest in different ways. One of those manifestations happened at his uncle's house. Oh, God, this one's going to give me chills. Um, There's this house that my uncle Rudy and my aunt Rose live in, in Pico Rivera, California. This, the house, my Uncle Bob used to be married to my, my Aunt Rose, and he'd say that they would always have, that house has to get exercised every six months. It's that dark, right? And remember, I'm Chicano, so, you know, the, there's always going to be a haunted room. This wasn't just, you know, like Chicano culture and, you know, that kind of thing. No, this was frightening. And I felt like if there was ever a portal to hell, this house was on top of it. I remember one time in that back room, my mom was in the kitchen. I was in the front room and I remember her coming out of the kitchen and looking down in the front room and she just looks at me in this kind of weird way. And then she puts on a smile. She goes, no, it's okay. No, keep, keep watching TV. Only after we left, did she tell me that in the back room, one of the more haunted rooms, Um, She heard me at that age, I was was a young teenager, saying, Mom, Mom, will you come back here real quick? Mom, Mom, I need you. And that's, but she could hear the TV going on in the front room, and she just like looks over and she goes, okay, I'm obviously not going to go in that room. I'm going to go check on my son. And she goes and she looks at me and she goes back into the kitchen and she said she heard it again. And that I just right now I've got goosebumps. I mean, really, that geez, that one still gets me. And especially since in that room, my cousin Isaac, I believe that was his room, and he like a blood curling scream one night. And my uncle Bob has to run over to the room, and the door's kind of like shut, and he's yelling, "Dad, Dad, don't come in here! It'll get you! It's right there! Don't come in! It'll get you!" Even to this day, they still have to send in somebody to exercise it, to bless it. Not much is creepier than an entity that mimics your loved ones. Something very similar happened to me in my home. But the following story, although upsetting, demonstrates the protective side of the supernatural world. I have a story, and it's kind of dark. It's about my mom, and... 
it might be triggering for some listeners. So I always want to give that trigger warning. So my mom is a beautiful indigenous Chicano woman. She used to have like really, really beautiful straight teeth, but years of domestic violence will change that. But she's always had this ability. I remember this one time when I was a little boy in Denver. My mother's husband at the time was this monster, this like this horrendous human being. He was very physically abusive, verbally abusive. But my mom has always been giving, has always been sweet. I, I still don't know how she can smile today. Everything that she's gone through and she's still happy-go-lucky. She'll give you the shirt off her back. Well, this one time I was downstairs with his sons and he was getting violent again. He was screaming at her and I can hear him throwing her around. And I was so little, there was, you know, there was nothing I could do. You know, uh, I was so scared for her and I was huddled, you know, it's just like crying. I remember yelling, telling him to stop. But then there was this, just like an explosion, this massive explosion that just rang your ears inside the kitchen, which was just up the flight of stairs. And it was out of sight, but all I could hear is the monster running above our heads on, on, you know, through the front room and out the door. And it was just silent, totally quiet. And I walk up the stairs and every cupboard is open and everything in every cupboard was removed like in an instant, just like her, her fear, her anger, her, her energy just exploded at that moment. And there was no possible way, no possible way that she could have opened all of those cupboards and removed all of the glasses and, you know, all of the forks and the knives, everything was just everywhere. And then there she was just standing there, still tears on her face. And she, he, I just, I remember saying, mom, and she looks at me and she just, you know, kind of like says she's okay. And then starts picking things up off the ground. And I asked her later in life, what was that? She goes, I don't know if it was me or if it was somebody protecting me, but it happened and I can't explain it. She's always had that protection, that love, that I think kind of manifests. And, and I think that one day when he was attacking her, it just, it just came out. My mom got us out of there. My mom is a strong indigenous woman. Indigenous women, I mean, women are strong. And my mom is just resilient and she's always had that kind of connection with the next place and with the elders and whatever it is that protects us when we need that protection. Call it a guardian angel, I don't know. But she's always had it. Even if it you know, hasn't always appeared, it will sometimes. This connection to the spirit world is so powerful and meaningful, which is why it's so disheartening to see it being disrespected in paranormal shows. I understand that there's entertainment elements that, you know, especially when it goes to story arcs. And in journalism, I remember one of my professors, not even my professor, my editor at the time said, you know, drama first, then the facts. And so when you look at it that way, it can be sensationalized. What I really want to see on these paranormal programs is more respect for these spaces and for these spirits less antagonizing, even if they don't believe in them. I mean, 
show some respect. I do get very angry when I see these mostly white men disrespect these spaces and these places for entertainment. When white, so even today, when white people come on the reservation, usually our first reaction is, what are you wanting for yourself? Because you're not here for us. Doesn't mean we're not a welcoming people, but you do find those ghost hunter shows trying to infiltrate or penetrate our communities. And they're like, you don't even know how to respect us as humans yet. Let alone, we're going to let you tell our story this way. Hell no, you can please leave. And they'll still do it, right? They'll go into the Black Hills where our, our creation story comes from. Our creation story, actually, we came from the soil, literally out of the ground in the Black Hills. So for us, that's the center of the world, center of the universe. And to have them go up there and do these like kind of ghost things and use language like shamans and Native Americans believed, like believed, like we're not here anymore, past tense, believe we're still here. Sometimes, well, you know, you'll turn on a show and maybe, you know, a Dene will be telling the story about the Schmim Schmockers. Remember, I'm not going to say that word because you don't want to welcome them. And, you know, when you say certain words, you're calling something to you. So you don't do that. My mom actually saw Schmim Schmocker and my grandpa saw it too. And we, we won't use the word, but she'll tell the story when she saw it. So a couple years ago, I was going through a really, really dark spell. Nothing was going right at all. And so my friend who's Dene here in New Mexico said, let's go see my grandpa. And her grandpa does English as a second language for a lot of our elders. A lot of people, you know, remember English is a foreign language. We got to remember that. <laughs> I came on a boat from, you know, England. So I really, I still believe that every student studying English, either in high school or college, should get a foreign language credit. So English is his second language, and but he's not really good at it, so he has to bring his daughter to translate. And then also my friend, who will also be there, you know, to help with certain words. So she takes me over to the res. He sits me down in the, uh, the Hogan, and he starts to say some things, starts to say some prayers. And he reveals that somebody to the north had put a curse on me. And so what they need to do was an evil away ceremony, what you would call it in English. And I was dating a, a woman at the time and her ex was of this nation and tribe and they assume it was him, but I, I needed to have that done so that I can move on uh, away from the darkness. And so I had to sit there for a while while the evil away ceremony was happening. Well, one day before that, we were leaving we were going back to my mother's off the Akama res and I'm, I'm asleep in the back of the van and my mom hits the brake really hard. It wakes me up. I roll, you know, kind of like around and my grandpa and my mom saw it. She goes, dad, did you see that? And I'm taking all the cuss words out right now. He's like, did you bleep and see that? What the bleep was that? And so she said it was like a combination of a fox and a rabbit and it galloped in this weird way and it stopped and looked at them and then ran into the brush. And my mom said, did you see it? And I said, no, I didn't see a thing. And later on, I found the elder and, and my friend said, it was just following you. You know, nothing to be scared of. It wanted them to see, your family to see it. And so... I'm, I think I'm good now, you know, after the evil away ceremony, it was pretty stressful. It kind of takes a lot out of you, but I, uh, 
I remember that vividly. They thought like it could have been a schmim schmocker. Remember, I'm not going to say the word, but you can you know do the math. But they also said it, you know, it could have been just that thing leaving, but it wanted to be seen first. My mom still gets chills when she talks about it. And my grandpa saw the saw the gallop into the bush. I will admit that I myself have used the wrong language on some of my shows and promise to do better in the future. When we return from the break, Simon shares some customs and beliefs, dispels common misconceptions, and informs us of the real-world consequences of disrespecting Indigenous beliefs. I know this is more about ghosts and stuff, and we can definitely talk about that, but some of the really dark, dark stuff that Indigenous people have to go through just functioning, you know. Before I became a podcaster and paranormal investigator, I used to be a full-time animator and character designer, and podcasts kept me company while I drew, especially paranormal podcasts. One of my favorites was Jim Harold's Campfire. I would actually be shocked if you hadn't heard of it because it's one of the OGs. In fact, it recently celebrated its 13th anniversary. But if you haven't heard of it, it's a call-in show where ordinary people share their extraordinary stories with Jim every week. The story topics range from ghosts, UFOs, cryptids, and stories that can't be categorized. You're listening to my show right now, so I know that you love non-fictional paranormal stories. Stories involving the serial killer Ted Bundy, or a man who owned a haunted hotel. And also heartwarming stories of deceased loved ones coming back to say hello. Jim Harold's Campfire was a huge inspiration for me. So do me a personal favor and tune in to Jim Harold's Campfire on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to Stories with Sapphire. And now the story continues. We don't, in my language, in the Lakota language, we don't have a word for goodbye because our relation to the next place um, is, is so deep in our, our spiritualities and our language. So the word is toksha, toksha akhe, and that means see you again, because I'm going to see you again, either in this life or the next. So there's a very thin veil between the next place and where we are now. I know that for a lot of nations and tribes, you know how you can go to, you know, donate somebody's clothing. Um, We don't do that. You would have to burn them because your spirit is passed into your, these clothing and you need to send them away in a good way. And so you, you, usually in those cases, you just like, you wouldn't have somebody's stuff around you. You'd burn it so you can let them walk on to the next place. If a person's belongings keep them from moving on to the next life, then the same goes for a person's flesh and bones. There are scalps, indigenous scalps, still in museums across the world. And we need those back because those those are parts, physical parts, flesh of our ancestors that are now just hanging up in museums so they can't move on to the next place. And so without the songs, without the prayers, without the tobacco, they're stuck here. And there's some in Germany. I encourage people to go on the New York Times and just put Native American and then Germany. And you'll see the fetish that these people have with us. Some of them live in teepees and they, uh, they, they claim that even though I'm German, I'm a Native American in spirit. And then they give themselves these weird fake names. And um, there's this museum that still has indigenous scalps on display. And so 
that means our ancestors, that means our family cannot go to the next place. Just like all the thousands and thousands of children and babies that died in boarding schools that have been recently found in Canada and here, if they're not buried in the right way, the right songs, they're stuck here. Think of all the indigenous people over time, over since the white man stumbled this way, all those spirits that are still stuck here that haven't been able to go home. So when white people came here, and this is true, and I told this story on NPR, um, which was ridiculous. They had to hold it because they were like, well, we got to verify. Like, are you going to go ask some old white man at a university with a beard? Or are you going to listen to the indigenous people, right? We don't need a PhD. They need a PhD to be the experts of us. Come on. And so, you know, there are ways to repatriate those back to us. There's actually an act to repatriate them back, but it doesn't work across the globe. They would come here and they would take our scalps, they would take our bodies, and they would take them back to London, they would take them back to all over Europe, and they were traded. So as a matter of fact, that's why the term, I'm only going to say it once, I hate this word, redskin. They had them as, as headlines, like our words to sell, $250. You can look these up. This is totally real. And so getting those back from the Germans is extremely difficult. I absolutely understand that women and, and non-binary people have to like push people. Like, don't touch my hair. Don't touch my booty. Don't, you know, indigenous, they want to touch us almost like poke. Are you real? Are you a real Indian? And you're like, yeah, could you not touch me? And that happens all the time. So there's always been this fascination with our hair and they festooned Europe and parts of the United States with our scalps. And they weren't just taken and everybody, immediately thinks it was like a warrior scalp. No, they would take them from children. They would take them from women. One of the most disgusting things that they would do is they would scalp the pubic area to prove if it was a woman. And so there's so many of these sad stories. One of the darkest stories that I remember learning of when I was in college, I, I did a semester um, at the University of Denver before I transferred to, to New York, to Columbia, Tink Tinker is an Osage academic, and he did. He wrote this paper about this book that the University of Denver had on display, and it was a book on Christian history in the United States and Colorado and the Plains, but it was bound in the filleted skin of an indigenous person. And they had it on display for, I don't know, it's, it's been a while since I read the paper, but it was a long time, more than 50 years, 80 years. They finally took it down, and I, I think they gave the skin back to, I think it might have been the Cheyenne or the Arapaho people. When you think of Auschwitz and Dachau and, you know, the, the brutality of the Holocaust, we have to remind people that Hitler was inspired by the Indian reservation system, and he talked about it many, many times. It's documented. I think his name is John Toland, wrote this massive book, and he talks about it. And I don't think people are aware that reservations were first founded as prison camps. My reservation, the Pine Ridge Reservation, is actually prison camp 334, technically. Back in the 1940s, when Pearl Harbor happened and they rounded up all the Japanese, who was in charge of it? The Bureau of Indian Affairs. The Bureau of Indian Affairs was in charge of rounding up all the Japanese and Japanese Americans. And they're like, well, where are we going to put them? The U.S. was like, we already have prison camps. Put them on the prison camps. And so I encourage people to look up Poston, Arizona, P-O-S-T-O-N, and 
that's where they put some of the Japanese to work and to build barracks so that they wanted to round up all the Diné that were across the reservation. And so there was this great story on ABC. Somebody wrote it and this headline just hit and it's like an internment camp within an internment camp. And there's all these stories. I mean, this this book bound in the filleted skin of an indigenous person. And then we're learning about how, you know, in school, we learned about how the Germans, how the Nazis would make lampshades out of the filleted skin of a Jewish person that could be a child. That happened here, too. They did that with our skin. There's still we still have our prison camps. We just turned them into reservations. I remember somebody telling me once, there are no mass pits of people. And, you know, we never have done that. And I was like, yeah, you actually have. The United States did that with my people, the Wudini massacre. You massacred hundreds and hundreds of my people, women, children, babies. And then you shoved them all into a pit. And they actually, the United States government actually paid civilians, white civilians, $2, I think, per body to put them in the massive pit that's up there right now. And it's one of our... It's it's heavily guarded in a way. Let's put it that way. Um, you have to be vouched if you're going to try to go up there. So, like any of these TV shows, I want to go up there and you know talk about maybe this, that, or the other. You're going to get stopped because it's a sacred spot. It, it these are hard things to talk about because it's still very real for us. The idea of being fetishized and per capita, we're more likely to be killed by cops than any other demographic. Indigenous women are about three times now more likely to be sexually assaulted than women of any other demographic. And we're still excluded from these conversations. And we know why, because you can't be the greatest nation in the world if you're guilty of a genocide. If the United States wanted to apologize to indigenous people for all, you know, for hundreds of years of rape and murder and pillaging and genocide, we'd be like, okay, well, give us the land back. If you don't give us the land back, then it's an empty apology. And this idea where like you lost it fair and square. So that you so fair and square means rape and murder and pillaging. And so that's fair and square in the white way. I mean, it makes sense because I mean that's a twisted perspective, but it's always been about taking. And they'll take anything, they'll dig down into the grave, which they did. Also, when they came here, they thought that they could haphazardly dig holes and just find gold, but they couldn't. So while they were haphazardly digging around looking for gold, what weren't they doing? planting crops so what they did was they would dig down deep to a grave and if it was a fresh body they would eat the flesh this is proven please read i think he just passed away james lowen's lies my teacher told me and he documents that also funerary items so for there's this story my friend who's uh in Nupach, and uh that is i guess eskimo to people that don't know them they have a story about this in Nupak with this white man and this white man goes over and he takes like a teapot from the grave because they bury their people with things like a hatchet things that they're going to need in the next place right so this white man walks up and he takes the teapot and in the Nupak is like no oh hell no put that back and he's like ah whatever i know we're going to take it in and so they take it into this little shack well all of a sudden, you know, as they're, they're there and, you know, the fire's going and the guy's making himself some tea and he offers the Inupak man some tea and he goes, no, not at all. And uh, all of a sudden, like a, a mist comes under the door, a steam kind of 
kind of takes over the place and then it starts to build into this figure and into a ghost into the spirit white man is scared frozen uh the enupak knows exactly what's happening and he knows what he has to do because his elders have told him this is how you send ghosts back first thing you have to do is you have to walk up to the ghost and you have to put your hand on its head you don't push you just let the weight of your hand you know just kind of like put the ghost back into the ground but in this case the enupak got a little eager and he pushed too hard and so the, the ghost came right back up and so he had to do it again so he goes and he puts his hand on the top of the head of the, the spirit and he just slightly ever so gently puts him back into the soil then he tells the white man you took that teapot you have to go put it back for a lot of indigenous people like funerary items are connected to you and connected to who we are so that's why it's so bothersome not why 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 would i even use that word it's it's disgusting when we were fighting against the Dakota Access Pipeline in 2016 and they were digging up our grave sites, disturbing these spaces, you know, digging up our ancestors, our grandmas, you know, for a pipeline, right? And so that's what we were there fighting for, protecting the people, protecting the water, protecting our ancestors, our way of life. And so when you disturb those graves, there's going to be consequences. And uh, a good example of that is Denver International Airport. And the reason I bring that up is because when I was a reporter at the Denver Post, once in a while, they would have me write about indigenous things, which was great because again, you know, there's Indian country today, there's the Navajo Times, but there, even NBC still doesn't have a, a vertical for indigenous people. We, we still don't have a seat at the table, you know, but we're working on that, I'm working on that. And so you can look this up. Uh, it's up there. I think it's still on their website. I wrote this like in 2008. When they built DIA, they built it over sacred land. They built it over grave sites. Okay, indigenous people's sacred land and our ancestors are there. And they couldn't keep people on staff for like two weeks. People were ditched because there would be footsteps coming up behind them and not the subtle kind. So apparently the ghosts there, they would come up behind you like, do, 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 you know, right there, that should scare anybody. Cause even if it's not a ghost, imagine just being somewhere and all you hear is do, 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 right behind you. And you're like, you're ready to throw some blows. So they heard those kinds of footsteps, things moving on their own doors, opening and shutting voices, stuff like that. Well, they couldn't keep staff on at anywhere at DIA. And so they bring in a Catholic priest and he says prayers, blah, blah, blah. Still, do, 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 do. things opening and closing and whatever. And so they brought a rabbi. And so basically they were going through all the Abrahamics first. And then finally, somebody said, maybe we should bring an Indian. I mean, we're on their land. And so what they did was they reached out, I believe, to the Cheyenne and, uh, Cheyenne and the Arapaho. I think they also reached out to the Ute. And so they brought an elder. And that elder said, well, this is what you're going to have to do for as long as you guys are here. You're going to have to play this drum song on the loop until this place shuts down and you guys leave. And so right now, if you fly through Denver International Airport and there's two security entrances, one specifically is upstairs and will take you to Concourse A alone. And you can go through the security. And when you do, there's like this little hill that you'll cross over very ever so subtly. You're, you'll hear the song. 
And people are like, oh, you're the Native American. I was like, yeah, that's not here to entertain you. That's here to protect you. That's here to like to calm the spirits. I mean, the oh, I don't again. I, I just it's ridiculous that they took so long to go. Hey, we built it on native land and it's a couple grave sites. Let's bring in a rabbi. What is what's the rabbi going to do for indigenous people who've been here for more than twenty thousand years? That's fine. He's going to say some prayers, which is great. But at the end of the day, you got to bring the Cheyenne and the Arapaho if you're doing this on a Cheyenne Arapaho lands. This story demonstrates how often Indigenous voices are left out of the discussion. So it's no wonder that Indigenous cultures are the ones most often victims of cultural theft. Some elders are going to say no white people at our ceremonies. Because ever since they got here, the question has been, who, who, which are the good ones, which are the bad ones? And you don't know until they actually take something of yours. And so, for example, in my language, white people are called washichus. So washi is the meat ichu is to take. Basically, we were just calling them the greedy people. So for us, yeah, everything is descriptive. An indigenous person back in the day, their name could change three to four times based on what you did. So it's kind of like an honor thing. It's like you don't want to dishonor your family. You don't want to dishonor yourself. So what you need to do is be on your best behavior or you're just going to get a horrible name. Appropriation, it's important for people to understand that that's cultural theft. We deal with cultural theft all the time, and we have a running thing. It's like, when did we become cool? Seriously, because up until like the 1960s and the hippies, we were just ostracized and the enemy and the savage, and you know, and then all of a sudden we became cool. And then here comes Kevin Costner and Dances with Wolves, and then we became cooler. So all of a sudden, people wanted to be native. And so there was actually, as a matter of fact, there was this huge influx of people trying to enroll with a tribe after Dances with Wolves. I mean, there's, see, we've been so fetishized. Like, for example, I have a, a book coming out. The title is Your Spirit Animal is a Jackass because there's no such thing as a spirit animal. I swear to you, hands down, there's no such thing as a spirit animal. We have clans like Turtle Clan, Bear Clan. My P, I come from the Thunder People, but. We're, there's no such thing as that's my spell oh, of the Wolverine, you know, that, you know, jazz. So appropriation is a constant thing that we're fighting every single day. People will, they'll get very violent too. If you tell them that you can't, you know, please take that headdress off. That's like our, you know, the Eagle feathers would be our medal of honor. And they're like, oh, I'm going to wear this. I'm a quarter Chocta, which some guy did yell at me. When I went and I tried to educate people outside of the Washington football team stadium back in 2017, ESPN was there and they were photographing all these people kind of getting nasty with me. You're either going to get humble acceptance or aggressive denial when you provide information like this. You know, you got to pick your fights. You really have to pick your fights. But there are some things, for example, that are very, it's, it's so like, this is also, it can be a life or death thing. There was this dude in Arizona who killed people by hosting an Anipi. And he didn't let anybody drink any water. He didn't let anybody eat anything. And I believe this was in Sedona, Arizona. And it's got to be like 10 years ago. And so he, he was charging people to go to a ceremony. Don't go to any indigenous ceremonies where you're being charged. Okay, that is appropriation. That's cultural theft. Don't do it. And it's extremely dangerous because these people haven't been taught how to host an Anipi. And so he cooked, this white man literally cooked people in an Anipi. 
One thing I'm absolutely going to do after this is I'm going to go smudge. You know, having talked about all these things and especially about spirits and and also the bad things out there. Uh, one thing we do is we smudge with sage or, or sweetgrass. One thing I want to encourage people to do, please do not buy sage at Walmart or Whole Foods because, and this is totally true, when you light that in your house, you're reversing the energy. You're reversing the positivity. You're you're supposed to cleanse yourself and your home, your car, whatever with, with sage. But when you purchase it and then you go and you try to smudge your home, it's completely the opposite. It becomes negative and dark. Even to this day, when I see people trying to purchase it, I'm like, you're supposed to harvest it. Go find it, you know, or make friends with an indigenous person and ask them if they'll give you some. Old story. I think most natives have this story. It's a cocky white man. Comes over to our, our village and an old lady approaches him. And he says, do you own this land? And she goes, what do you mean? Do you own it? Is this your land? She goes, uh, no. He goes, okay, so you don't own it. I own it now, you know, stake in the ground. And she goes, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. I, I don't own it, but this is my home. This is, this is where I live. And he says, bah, but you don't own it, do you? And he, she's like, no, I can own the land as much as I can own the air or the water. And he goes, well, all right, well, it's mine now. And she goes, okay, all right. If it is yours, if this land truly is yours, you have to take it with you when you leave. If you can't, it's not yours. And so that story goes into the idea of like, look at what we buy. Now you can buy water, right? You buy land. And so of course they're going to commodify sage. They commodify our ceremonies. That's why a lot of indigenous elders don't welcome white people anymore uh, because they don't know who are the good ones, who are the bad ones, as I said, but also we don't want our ceremonies sold. We don't want the land sold. It's difference in ideology. The land is our mother. We need her. She doesn't need us. So you show that respect that you would of your mother. And then they came with this book, this Bible thing. And in the Bible, it says subdue. And like, really? That is an awful, would you subdue your mom? Would you subdue your grandma? So it's a, it's a difference in perspective and respect. So that's why we say, walk gently on the land. That's your mother, show her respect. So the fact that people are buying sage wands, whoever came up with that, at Whole Foods, I will on occasion walk up and say, hey, do you want some sage? I'll give it to you because if you buy this, you're welcoming bad things into your home. There's so many stereotypes about us, but one of them should be that we're patient you know, like a positive one, because we are, we're very patient people. You know how many people come up to me and say, do you live in a, people still live in a teepee and, and you know, on your land? And it's like, no, no. And then I'll tell them what it's like, etc. And everybody has questions. The problem is they're not sharing them with their friends, you know? And so we answer the same questions over and over. So make sure you pass on the knowledge that Simon graciously shared with us today. Um, we're the smallest racial minority in our ancestral land. Think of that. I mean, in 500 years, 520 years, anthropologically speaking, that was fast. And that wasn't just germs, right? You know, there was murders and rapes and massacres. There was a genocide. So I think it's, it's people use the word shaman because they don't know where to ask. I don't, and, and also people don't pass us the mic. So thank you also for passing me the mic. I mean, that's really important. 
I am really, really going to have to smudge after this. If you'd like to learn more about Simon and his work, you can follow him on Twitter at Simon Moya Smith and keep an eye out for his book, Your Spirit Animal is a Jackass. Thanks for joining me today. If you are also Indigenous, I'd love to hear from you. Send me an email at storieswithsapphire at gmail.com. If you like what you heard and would like to support this independently run show, consider becoming a member of my Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash storieswithsapphire to learn more. And don't forget to subscribe to youtube.com slash sapphiresandalo, where I post animated spooky stories and more. Salamat and good night. Stories with Sapphire is created and produced by me, Sapphire Sandalo. Music written by Sapphire Sandalo. Special thanks to Simon Moya Smith. For more information on this episode, visit storieswithsapphire.com.